Director's Commentary, The Sheridan Monkhouse Collection. They say that science is often stranger than fiction. It's not, though. And this was something I set out to prove in my 2001 sci-fi spectacular, The Canine Dimension. Hi, I'm Sheridan Monkhouse. I'm here with an outstanding glass of malt whiskey and you're listening to the commentary track of the new ultra-high definition remaster of Canine Dimension. As ever, the commentary highlights will be released as a podcast for the sort of people who like to spend their time listening to podcasts. Good luck to you, I say. With Canine Dimension, I sought to explore the theory of the multiverse. The idea that there are an infinite number of dimensions with universes like our own, but each slightly different. For example, there might be a universe like ours, but instead of making movies, I work in a sandwich shop, which, you may be surprised to learn, I'd actually be quite good at. Ryan Gosling has said on more than one occasion that my tuna torpedo is the equal of any he's tasted. Happily, though, in this universe, I am privileged enough to make movies both popular and critically acclaimed. That's not to say that I have anything but respect for the guys who do work in sandwich shops, though. Couldn't do without them. The Multiverse Canine Dimension posits the terrifying theory that there is a dimension with a universe like ours, but instead of humans keeping dogs as pets, dogs are the dominant species and they keep humans as pets. As ever, it was my great friend and collaborator Jerry, God rest his soul, who came up with this idea. I was riding pretty high after a critical and commercial hit with Mom's a Potato, a hilarious body swap comedy about a suburban mom who swaps bodies with a potato. And it was time to try something a little more thought-provoking. I had the finance for some outstanding special effects, I had the multiverse concept, but I had no story. Bang, out of the blue, the phone rang. Sometimes it just does that. It was Jerry. Sure, he said. I've just been talking to Rex. Rex was Jerry's dog. And apparently he just explained to Jerry that he was from a different dimension where dogs ruled over men. Well, it was an outstanding idea. Terrifying, yet intriguing. What would society be like? Would bones replace money? Would humans sniff each other's backsides? What a rich setting. I didn't actually realise that Jerry was serious about having had the conversation with his dog until several days later, when the Mexican police found him in a back street of Guadalajara, naked, covered in dog food and shouting that he was a man and he wouldn't fetch a stick for anyone. Mescaline can be a dreadful thing. We open with white text on a black screen. A simple Aristotle quote. The worst nightmare for mankind would be a dimension like our own, but where dogs are the dominant animal. Did Aristotle actually say that? Who knows? If he did, it wasn't recorded by the scribes of ancient Greece, but I reconcile that by suggesting that perhaps there truly is a multiverse, with millions of dimensions, and in one of those dimensions is a universe like our own, but with a version of Aristotle who was terrified of a parallel universe populated by intelligent dogs. To begin the film, I needed to introduce this concept of the multiverse. And so we open on Billy Ray, a small boy with a terrifying power. As the titles run, we see him open portals to other dimensions. An underwater dimension. A dimension where everybody speaks French. A dimension where no one can find their keys. So, 
we're introducing the concept and we're introducing a major character all in a few minutes while the titles are playing. It's very elegant filmmaking. Outstanding work from the young lad too. Complete unknown. Jeffrey Thompson, lovely kid. Obviously, has its problems in recent years, which seems to be something all child actors go through nowadays. Although running an illicit global weapons distribution network out of the Baltic states supported by a 300-strong private army of mercenaries is a little more troubling than crashing your Ferrari after a few too many beers. I'm sure it'll all work out, though. He sent me a letter from his prison in Tbilisi only recently. Obviously, I didn't answer it because, well, Jeff's a terrifying, terrifying criminal. Now, this is worth pointing out. One of the early big effect shots. Because it's really quite... Here, this here, is a dimension where people don't wear shoes. And it really, genuinely looks like all these people aren't wearing shoes, doesn't it? They are, though. That's the magic of CGI. As the title sequence comes to a close, the camera passes through one of Billy Ray's portals and settles in this universe of dogs. Now again, we're seeing a big effect shot here. All of these dogs are CGI. Oh, with the exception of that small poodle just off to the side there. We'd just had this outstanding charisma we couldn't capture with effects. It's quite incredible, really. We've got the dogs wearing trousers, dogs playing basketball, dogs drinking cappuccinos. Drinking cappuccinos! Ten years before this, if I'd asked for a convincing shot of a dog drinking coffee, people would have looked at me as if I were a lunatic. Not anymore. Hats off to the scientific community, I say. Genuinely outstanding work they're doing. Finally, after showing us the chilling sights of intelligent dogs drinking properly frothed coffee, the camera comes to rest on a small puppy who looks through the portal at what Billy Ray is doing to open the portals and mimics him in a crude doggy fashion. A portal to our own universe opens and the implications are clear. These dogs could invade whenever they wish. Fascinating fact for you. How many films can you name where the first line of dialogue is spoken by a dog? No? Then I'll tell you. There is only one. Which is really quite surprising, isn't it? When you consider that there must have been millions of films. It's spoken here by our antagonist, Rivere, the empress of the world of dogs. And surprisingly, despite the realism of the performance, she isn't actually played by a dog, but by an outstanding voice actress called Liz Trinder. Liz was well known in England for a work on the hugely popular Oh Bother Where's My Cardigan, a hilarious cartoon about an old lady who could never find her cardigan. But she'd never worked on a big Hollywood effects movie before. She actually researched the role by spending a week living in a kennel. But I don't think she needed to. She had an instinct for it. She really got under the skin of Rivere. It remains the only film she did, but uh, she is now a superstar in the world of video games. And if you've ever played any of the Honor of Justice of Medal of War series of games, then you'll have certainly come across Major Dorothy Deathmamer, played by the excellent Miss Trinda. The line she speaks has become an iconic opening line. Many fans quote it back to me. Dogs, make the humans your bitches. Bang, that's a classic. Jerry wrote it. It was a sort of insight Jerry had. He could get under the skin of anyone. Man, woman dog empress so while the dogs from the other dimension are slowly infiltrating our society i introduce our heroes 
This is particularly interesting because it's a tremendously unsettling sequence and it's unlikely you'll have realised why. It all takes place in the park. On the surface, it's just normal people doing normal things. Grizzled old army vet Sawyer, cleaning his weapon, wondering what became of the country he fought for. Genius hacker Jesse, or Trillion, as she's known online, is hacking into the White House website because she's a techno-anarchist and that's what she does. And, of course, the likeable wise-ass graffiti artist J.D., He's being hassled by the cops after doing some graffiti on a derelict building which I think most people would agree actually improves it. So it's just a normal afternoon, right? Wrong. It's off. You're unsettled. You know something is wrong, but what? Well, it's the dogs. The dogs in the background are behaving just slightly... There. You see this one? Well, a cat walks past and he doesn't chase it. Which is, you know, you probably won't notice that, but your subconscious will. And it's your subconscious that's going, that dog didn't chase the cat. There's something weird going on here. But you can't quite put your finger on what. It's subliminal suggestion, which is affecting the viewer on a level of subconscious that he's not even aware of. Not only is he not noticing the behaviour of the dogs, but he's not even noticing that he's not noticing the... Oh, there's a dog reading the paper. See? Subliminal. It's filmmaking on several layers, lots of subtle suggestion, which is something you really need when you're making a picture about intelligent warrior dogs invading from another dimension. Subtle suggestion. It's probably best to address that... Yes, that is Monica Jeffries playing Jessie, although at the time she was better known as Ariola Chakra, and she was riding high on some huge pop singles, On the Booty, Ride My Pony... And of course, her beautiful ballad, Let's Have Sexual Intercourse. She was only 19, and she'd sold millions of records. So then she got into movies. She played it well, taking a small role in an indie picture called Talking Quietly and Staring at the Ocean. It was well received. Not my sort of thing, of course, but she clearly had some talent. I was certain that Canine Dimension was going to send her through the roof. But it wasn't to be. And tragically, this was the last film she made. She got into politics and dedicated herself to setting up job programs across the Midwest, which I'm sure have proved very useful and everything, but, well, with the sort of talent she had, it just seems like such a waste. A dog starts barking, then another, and another, and the invasion starts. Look at them, pouring through the streets of Chicago. This is actually the largest number of fake dogs on screen at one time. It's in the Guinness Book of Records. Look it up. We took the record from 101 Dalmatians. So, sheer weight of numbers sees the dogs quickly overpower the humans. These scenes here, of the dogs rounding up the defeated humans, these could be troubling. So I was very careful not to show any scenes of dogs doing actual harm to human beings. The last thing I wanted to do was encourage real-life reprisals against dogs. I mean... Yes, this is all CGI and special effects, but people can be funny. So, dogs, dogs, more dogs, dogs. You know, there might be a little too much dogs going on. Ah, yeah, here we go. Our heroes are now coming together. Sawyer, and this is a tragic statement on how society doesn't really value old army vets enough. Sawyer works as a lowly janitor in a computer programming company. Perhaps this is soldier instincts. 
but he senses that dogs would stay away from such a human environment as a computer office, and so he makes this his base camp. He pulls a confused Jesse in off the street. Now, in the original script, he had a long speech here about how she reminded him of his estranged granddaughter. And then later on, there would be a devastating plot development where they track back through her history to find that she genuinely was his granddaughter. Sadly, though, it was incredibly boring. That was the thing about Jerry. He could write with such insight and humanity, but then other times he'd write 20-minute pieces of exposition about genealogy. JD smashes a window, breaks in and joins them. It's important to realise here that he isn't a criminal. Not really. But he doesn't conform to society's rules. He's a free spirit. So to him, smashing his way into the computer company's office is just, well, it's just survival. But to Sawyer, who spent his life fighting for society in Iraq, Cuba, Korea, Vietnam, World War II, it's the worst thing you can do. It doesn't matter to him that dogs are invading from another dimension. You just don't smash a window and break into an office. So now we have conflict amongst our heroes. Conflict is drama. And I mean, not literal conflict, like fistfights in the street, but psychological conflict. So yes, the audience want to see humankind defeat the intelligent warrior dogs from another dimension, but it's that human conflict that keeps you invested in our characters. The canine dimension is set in Chicago, but I need the dog invasion to feel like a huge global event. So now there's a number of vignettes from around the world. Here we've got dogs rounding up French people and confiscating their berets and cigarettes in the shadow of the Eiffel Tower. We've got a scene of dogs in the city of London marching businessmen in bowler hats around. Look how the businessmen are lining up politely. It's just a little humour there. There's room for satire in sci-fi, I think. Here's some angry Australians shouting and screaming as the dogs empty their beer into a drain. In Germany, the dogs are setting fire to a currywurst stand, which, if you've ever eaten currywurst, may see you actually side with the dogs. <laughs> in Belgium, there's all these waffles. And, well, look, the point is that even though you're invested in the very personal story of Sawyer, JD and Jesse, this is going on all around the globe. Humanity is at stake, and it's these scenes that really make that clear. There's a rhythm to filmmaking, and it's speeding up here as we see the global implications of the canine invasion. It's France, it's Britain, it's Australia, it's Germany, Belgium, Greenland, it's faster, it's faster, faster, and bang, climax. A series of shocking scenes ends with the most shocking of all. The President of the United States' worst nightmare, being forced to surrender to a dog. Perhaps if you're not an American... You can't appreciate how shocking it is to see an Alsatian sat behind the famous Resolute desk in the Oval Office addressing her newly conquered world. It's a tough watch, and as such, I gave any Americans in the crew the opportunity to leave the set during the filming of the scene. It's testament to the integrity and the professionalism of that crew, and indeed, that great nation, that none of them did. This is a really interesting piece of character development here as we see the strength of our heroes come to the fore. They've just witnessed the fall of their country on Jesse's internet computer, but rather than be disheartened, they just instinctively go to work. Jesse immediately launches a major hack using cyberspace. Sawyer uses his army experience to start planning a human rebellion. And JD writes, dogs suck on a wall. So, a bit of structure for you. 
The canine dimension follows a simple three-act structure. The invasion of the dogs is Act 1, now comes Act 2, the failed insurgency. Jessie, using her online guise as Trillian, has used technology to establish that the Chicago headquarters of the canine military authority is centred in the John Hancock Centre. Sawyer, thanks to his experience of fighting in countless wars, recognises that the best way to hurt the dogs is to upset their supply lines. These are the cross-dimensional deliveries of bones that, if destroyed, could be a huge blow to the dog army. What you probably don't know is that this is actually a very sound military strategy. It was Jennifer Lopez who gave me this idea. Outstanding woman. To most people, she's just Jenny from the block. But what you probably don't know is that she has a near encyclopedic knowledge of military history. I happened to be meeting with her about the possibility of making a sequel to her terrifying mind invasion thriller, The Cell. In a neat twist on the original's psychotherapist literally enters serial killer's mind premise, the sequel would have had her entering the killer's pancreas. Sadly, in the end, it never got off the ground. Anyway, it was during that meeting that she started talking about the Battle of Stalingrad. I stifled a yawn. I mean, Jenny's a delight, but when she starts on military tactics, her enthusiasm can be a little bit too much. But then she mentioned something about supply lines, and I took notice. Very much so. I got her to explain it and said, what if, instead of the Germans, the Russians were fighting an army of dogs? And instead of military supplies, it was... Before I could finish, she just smiled, raised her eyebrow and said, bones? They definitely take out the bones. So I had act two. Sawyer's plan to strike back at the dogs, all due to Jennifer Lopez's exceptional knowledge of military tactics. Oh, this is a lovely character scene. Sawyer and JD have to try and convince Jesse to do a sexy dance to distract the dogs so the guys can plant explosive on the bone transporter. Look at Jesse now. She's going crazy saying that she's an intelligent woman and she shouldn't be reduced to doing sexy dances for dogs. Which is true if you think about it. In fact, and I don't think I really realised it until I'm watching it again now, it's actually an incredibly empowering and feminist moment. In the end, though, she realises that these are desperate times and that, ultimately, a man doing a sexy dance to distract some dogs is going to look pretty ridiculous. And so she agrees. It's just a nice scene that gives the protagonist some real personality. So we've got the bones all coming through the portal from the dimension of the dogs and, well, it's a spectacular special effect, a real signature moment in the picture. The scale of that transporter full of bones, that's outstanding. All right, tissues ready? Because this is a genuinely tragic moment. I still find this devastating to this day. You'd have to be some sort of robot not to. At first, it looks like the plan is working. Jesse's sexy dance is distracting all the dogs. Sawyer and JD are able to slip through behind their lines and place the explosives on the bone transporter. But it all goes to hell and Sawyer dies. It's an outstanding death scene. The bomb's gone off. Flaming bones are raining down, and J.D. cradles a dying Sawyer in his arms while Jessie does her sexy dance to keep the dogs at bay. Sawyer's final lines are devastating. You, J.D., you are the future now. It's simple. It's elegant. But it expresses so much. Sawyer used to despair of what his country has become. Now, though, these two young people have given him hope for the future. And by using JD's name instead of just calling him Kid, 
J.D. knows that he's finally earned Sawyer's respect. Happily, despite the tragic loss of Sawyer, Jesse is able to do a hack on the dog's computer, and they find out about Billy Ray, the little boy who opened the portals, and how he could be a really quite powerful ally. It's nice, because even though they've lost Sawyer, it was a hero's death, and it wasn't in vain. Now we come to the biggest, well, not the biggest, but, well, it's quite a plot hole. If Billy Ray has this power, and the dogs know about him, then why don't they lock him away? Conversely, if the dogs don't know about him, then how can Jessie use her hacking to find out about him? It was a problem that could derail the whole movie. So I did whatever I did with a tricky plot point like this. I went to see my old friend and collaborator, Jerry. Jerry had helped me work up the original treatment for the story after coming up with the concept, but then he'd moved on to work with David Lynch on Mulholland Drive. However, it hadn't gone well. Now, you've got to understand that Jerry, he was a genius. He really was. So a lot of people find it difficult to raise their game to his level. David Lynch, sadly, was one of those people. Now, I love David. He's terrific. And he's made some genuinely classic films. Well, no. He's made some films, but he simply didn't have the intellectual capacity to keep up with Jerry. So Jerry, unfairly, I thought, was asked to leave the production. Although, I don't think it helped him that they found him in Naomi Watts' trailer, naked from the waist down and wearing a pair of her underwear on his head. Anyway, their loss was my gain. And I think that if you watch Mulholland Drive and then Canine Invasion, you'll see that it really was their loss. So anyway, we've got this plot problem with Billy Ray and the dogs knowing about him and Jesse and JD needing to get to him. And I said to Jerry, how can we make this work? Jerry didn't miss a beat. Get the girl to take her bra off. Of course, as ever, he was right. Obviously, I didn't want Jesse to literally take her bra off. It wasn't that sort of film. But I could introduce a romantic subplot, which I think was what Jerry was going for, really. It's strange to think that To many people, the canine dimension is as much a love story between these two kids as it is a story about evil dogs enslaving humanity. But that whole side of things was just brought in to disguise the Billy Ray plot problem. So we have this sequence on the road where they slowly fall in love. She hacks into a record company to play the rock music that JD loves but has been banned under the new canine regime. J.D. writes Jesse forever in graffiti on the wall. It's Romeo and Juliet. If Romeo and Juliet were set in a dystopian future, which is actually a film concept I came very close to getting off the ground in the late 90s. But ultimately, Macaulay Culkin just wasn't interested. So the two of them, now very much in love, find Billy Ray, and he opens the portal to the dog dimension. J.D. wants to get the hell in there and avenge Sawyer's death. It's a crazy plan, but damn it, these dogs killed his friend. Jessie who stops him, and it's her love for him that stops him getting killed. In fact, in many ways, it's Jessie who is actually the hero of this whole piece. Because it's her plan that saves humanity from the canine tyranny. It's her who figures out that the two of them can't defeat an entire universe of warrior dogs on their own. And they're going to need some help. So where do they get this help? From dogs' greatest natural enemies, cats. Billy Ray opens up a portal to a dimension of hyper-intelligent cats, and Jesse and JD prepare to go in. It's a massive gamble, 
What if they treat humans like dogs do? But they realise that it's a risk they've got to take, so they go in. Terribly exciting moment here. I really ratchet up the tension. People, they're always on the edge of their seat. In fact, when I showed it to my great friend Clint Eastwood, he was so much on the edge of his seat that he actually fell off. We laughed, but I was relieved. He was 70. Broken hip at that age is no joke. But it all works out. The cat in this dimension are far superior to humans in our dimension or indeed the intelligent dogs in their dimension. These are hyper-intelligent cats who have warred with humans in their past and now want only a peaceful coexistence with all species. Many people have actually speculated that this is my vision of our own dimension's future. But that's not the case. I actually think that our future will see all creatures evolve into giant floating brains that assimilate both information and nutrition through elongated psychic flesh tubes. Far-fetched, perhaps, but you wait and see. These hyper-intelligent cats are certainly from the future in their own dimension, though, which is why their world had to be spectacular. This is a film so packed with outstanding special effects that by now you probably think you've seen everything. And in many ways, you have. But then... I give you a universe of hyper-intelligent cats from the future. It's genuinely spectacular. Cats driving flying cars. Cats with robot butlers. Self-cleaning kitty litter. Giant virtual balls of string. I don't think that in terms of creating a fantasy world from CGI alone, we've seen anything come close to this. I mean, granted, Jimmy Cameron gave it a good shot with Avatar, but that was just a backward world of primitive forest creatures. These are hyper-intelligent cats who live in holograms. It's incredible. We will surely never see the like. But then, bang, it's not just a universe of domestic cats, but lions and tigers and leopards as well, all hyper-intelligent. Look, there's a cheetah programming a computer. So now you, the viewer, probably sense hope for humanity. But more importantly, you are relishing an epic battle between an army of brutal warrior dogs and hyper-intelligent cats from the future. You are not disappointed. Although instinct dictates that an army of hyper-intelligent lions, tigers and cats from the future will defeat an army of intelligent warrior dogs, no matter how fanatical, I wanted to be sure, because credibility is everything to me. So I contacted MIT. They ran several computer simulations that showed that, yes, nine times out of ten, an alliance of cats, lions, tigers and humans would triumph in a battle with dogs. The only factor that could change the outcome would be if the dogs had access to weapons of mass destruction. I made sure that wasn't an option, and so the stage was set for an outstanding and scientifically credible battle between cats and dogs. So now sit back and enjoy what Empire Magazine called the finest example of domestic interspecies warfare of the millennium so far. Oh, this first scene is particularly Jesse and JD leading the charge mounted on a lion and leopard respectively. It's a powerful image, heroic, stirring. I tried to evoke Lord Cardigan's Charge of the Light Brigade, but more successful. And against intelligent warrior dogs as opposed to Russian soldiers. After the battle, I made a conscious decision to treat the dog soldiers kindly. 
They are soldiers after all, and I bow to no one in my respect for anyone who puts on a uniform to defend his way of life, be it man, woman, or in this case, warrior dog. The true villain of the piece is the evil Revere, empress of all the dogs, but rather than punish her, I chose to make a powerful statement about forgiveness. Revere expects to be killed. J.D. is keen to oblige, but Jesse stays his hand. She realises that it would make him just as bad as Revere. The dogs, impressed by the human's mercy, resolve to return to their own universe and make it a fairer and more decent place, and Revere is led away in chains. We end with the sun setting over a battlefield strewn with the carcasses of cats, dogs and humans. A poignant moment that was very important to me because, yes, the final battle is incredibly exciting. But I believe that war, regardless of whether it's cats against dogs or nation against nation, is a terrible, terrible thing. And if this final scene does give a rogue nation or insane general pause for thought before starting yet another terrible war, then I've done my job. So there we go. Thanks for watching The Canine Dimension with me. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, and let's all try and have a few less wars, shall we? Director's Commentary, the Sheridan Monkhouse Collection. An off-target production by Neil Tolfrey. Many people were surprised when I decided to make a film about someone having swimmer's ear.